afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome you tonight to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. We're going to be studying together lesson number seven. And it's going to be great to be together because we're going to launch ourselves again into the book of Daniel. I just want to thank you so much for your time and for taking this time out to find yourself in God's word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to open our hearts to your Holy Spirit tonight that you would teach us everything we need to know from Daniel chapter 5 through the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask you and thank you for that gift in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, welcome back. We're in the Prophecy Seminar. We're on Lesson 7. I'm asking you to open your lessons. I'm sure you've taken them out of the folders and join me at the top of page 2. God is patient with people and nations. Tonight we're looking at Daniel chapter 5, the writing on the wall. It is clear with God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar. Yet there comes a time when God must ring down the curtain if there's no response. It happens to individuals. It happens to nations. God bore along with ancient Babylon, giving revelation after revelation of himself. Nebuchadnezzar responded, but his successors did not. Daniel 5 portrays the final night of ancient Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Belshazzar, the successor of Nebuchadnezzar, sits upon the throne, co-regent with Nabonidus, his father. In this lesson, we'll observe the events surrounding the last night of Babylon. We will notice how the New Testament takes these events and applies to them what is called modern Babylon or spiritual Babylon and predicts a similar fall for it. Revelation warns that what happened 2,500 years ago in ancient Babylon will be repeated in these last days. Friends, tonight I have for you five theme questions. Number one, why did King Belshazzar even use the golden Jewish vessels? Good question. Two, what is the meaning of the writing on the wall for us today? Three, what is God teaching us from the failure of the so-called wise men? Number four, why was Daniel promoted to third ruler? in the kingdom of Babylon? And number five, why does God call us out of modern or spiritual Babylon at all? So here we are tonight, we're in Daniel chapter five. Thank you so much for doing your homework. You'll get a lot more out of the lesson tonight and I have a lot of information to give you. Friends, if it gets too much, you just log off at any time. You can always catch it up on YouTube, but uh, I do wanna give you extra material and I know that that will take some time and I'm happy for you to stay with me as long as you can tonight. We plan to go from 7.30 to nine o'clock. Well, our first heading is the last night of Babylon and we're in question one, halfway down page two. Thanks for joining me. List five things that Belshazzar did that defied the God of heaven. We're looking at Daniel 5, one to five. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So the five things that Belshazzar did, three of them are he made a great feast. He drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Look, if you ever given a, a party for your family, maybe you've catered for 20, 50, 100, this party went on for days or weeks. Sometimes these parties went for months and this guy, King Belshazzar, drank wine in the presence of thousands. 
He gave the command to bring the, the golden and silver vessels from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem. We're in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. There's our missing word. What did they drink? They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So the five things Belshazzar did. Number four, the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from those beautiful golden vessels from the Jewish temple. The problem was they praised the gods of gold and silver and brass and iron, wood and stone. Well, you might remember a couple of lessons ago, someone asked me, how do we know if the image of Daniel chapter 2 is correct? Let's ask this question. What type of gods did the Babylonians worship and are the pictures that we're using here tonight accurate? So what is that particular animal or hybrid there in that painting of the writing on the wall in the palace in ancient Babylon? I'm going to take you to the British Museum. What are we looking for in Daniel 5.4? They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Did you notice this is exactly, <coughs> excuse me, the progression of the image of Daniel 2? The gods made of gold, Babylon, silver, Medo-Persia, bronze, uh, Greece, and iron, which stands for Rome. The two legs left and right stand for the uh, eastern and western ends of the Roman Empire, but also of wood and stone. So the problem is that Belshazzar and his guests, the royal party, are actually praising their gods made of all out of these metals, but they're also saying that they will not worship the God of heaven by default and that they are worshipping a continuation of all of the kingdoms of the world. Well, did they have gods of stone. Here we are in the British Museum with one of the winged bulls. Notice the headdress. Notice the size of these. These are my photos from when I was over there in 2005 in the British Museum. The detail, the carving is absolutely amazing and you can see the size and the scale. These are two of the winged bulls sent back to the British Museum from Calla by Austin Layard and just to show you here's one in situ in Calla in Nineveh, uh, which is back in ancient Assyria. They were also used in Persepolis and they were also used after Assyria by the Babylonians. The winged bulls were mascots and the protectors of the empire. Well, did the Babylonians not only have gods of gold, silver, bronze and iron, did they have gods of gold and wood? They certainly did. These are not their gods. These are more the uh, gods of the silver kingdom, but we notice here a god of gold, wood and stone uh, of the ram caught in the thicket from ancient Ur of the Chaldees. So I'm going to the note under question one on page two. Belshazzar must have had some knowledge of the true god, certainly had heard the stories of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, the fiery furnace and the great image. But although he must have known these things, he did not acknowledge the true God. I'm reading at the bottom of page two, the second paragraph of the note. The Bible describes all of the leaders of Babylon as participating in Belshazzar's drunken feast. While in this drunken state, Belshazzar called for the vessels which had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. In defiance of the God of heaven, the rulers of Babylon drank intoxicating liquor from them. Using the very vessels concentrated to the worship of the true God, they offered praise to the gods of gold and silver. Here we see an attempt to mix, have a look on the screen, elements of the worship of the true God with the worship of pagan deities. This was the act that brought down the wrath of God and resulted in the actual fall of the ancient city of Babylon. Would you join me in question two? In the midst of their blasphemy against God, what suddenly appeared and startled the entire assembly? We're in Daniel 5 verses 5 and 6. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lamp, 
stand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Daniel's writing here very, very uh, discreetly, isn't he? That the king has become so distressed, he's scared witless and uh, yeah, he's lost control of his bodily functions. So in the midst of their blasphemy against God, what suddenly appeared and startled the entire assembly, especially King Belshazzar, the fingers of a man's hand, bloodless hand, writing on the wall, certainly got everyone's attention. Fear enveloped the entire assembly as they saw the fingers of a man's hand suddenly appear and write a mysterious language on the wall of the king's palace. Belshazzar had every reason to shake and quake. The day of reckoning had come. Friends, just take a break for a moment. I've got a question. How many times did God write with his own finger in the Holy Scriptures? I guess some of you are saying once. Many might say you can think of twice. How about three times? Number one, obviously, is the Ten Commandments in Exodus 32, 16. And the tables, meaning the Ten Commandments, the two tables were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. The second instance is the one we're looking at tonight in Daniel 5, 5, God's handwriting on the wall. But we also have Jesus' finger writing in the dust in John 8, 3 to 8. Quoting the scripture and the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him, Jesus, a woman taken in adultery. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. He that is without sin among you, let him cast first stone at her. And again, Jesus wrote on the ground. My favorite commentator writes that Jesus wrote down the sins of the men who had the stones. And as they read their own sins in the dust, they dropped their stones and dropped their rocks and they walked away. And Jesus said to the woman taken in adultery, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Friends, the Ten Commandments, the writing on the wall in Babylon and Jesus' finger writing in the dust, they are totally all done in a context of judgment. I have a question. Do you think we could be living right now in the day and the time of judgment? Do you believe that this earth is about to be judged? I believe that it is being judged and judgment is about to move from the dead <clears throat> to the living and many of our probation, I believe, will close very soon. Question three, halfway down page three in our lesson, who did the king call to interpret the writing? I think you know the answer, don't you? This is a bit of a shocker, isn't it? Daniel chapter five and verse seven. So the king at Belshazzar, King Belshazzar cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. No sorcerers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, there's our answer. Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Who did the king call to interpret the writing? He called the wise men of Babylon. Belshazzar had not learned Nebuchadnezzar's lesson, had he? He called the same group of wise men that had failed to adequately interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Number four, were the wise men able to interpret the writing? Not now all the king's wise men came, verse eight and nine, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. Were the wise men able to interpret the writing? No, and I've put in there for the third time, they have failed. Since the progression in the discrediting of the wise men of Babylon, in Daniel 2, they couldn't reveal the king's dream. But Daniel could. Then in Daniel 4, they couldn't interpret the dream. But Daniel could. Now to their total discredit in Daniel 5, they could not even read the writing on the wall. But we will soon see that Daniel could. Our second heading tonight is entitled Daniel, Daniel Interprets the Writing. Let's go to question five. Who suggested to the king that he call in Daniel? Well, this is fascinating. I love this passage and I'm going to give you some extra information because I know most of you are preparing this during the week and you are just looking forward to getting a deeper insight into the word of God. 
In Daniel 5.10, a new figure is introduced, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God, not God's, the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Friends, before we go on and read verse 12, I want to just talk to you about this phrase here, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king. Did any of you wonder about that? What does it mean when the queen said Nebuchadnezzar, your father? I want to make you aware that in ancient times, father could mean either father, grandfather, or even relative or ancestor. There are three interpretations of this scripture. Number one, Belshazzar was actually Nebuchadnezzar's grandson through his mother, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, who married Nabonidus, who was then Belshazzar's father. A second interpretation of the scripture, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, is that Nabonidus was a stepson because his mother belonged to Nebuchadnezzar's harem. And thirdly, the scholars say that Belshazzar was a son only in the sense that he was the next ruler of Babylon. Well, I guess you're going to ask me which is the correct answer. Friends, if I have to lean one way or the other, I think I'm going to choose option number one. Why am I choosing option number one? Let me ask you a question. Can you remember Queen Esther? Did Queen Esther just wander into the court of King Ahasuerus, who was the Greek King Xerxes? You know, I've just read that passage and I've just gone through the book of Esther. That's absolutely fascinating. I did that last week. No, Queen Esther had to wait until the king called her. And even when he called her, when she walked in, if he didn't hand out the golden scepter, then she was rejected and would be killed. Friends, I want to ask you, who do you think could wander in without any invitation into the king's banquet chamber in this night of debauchery and tell him, pretty much give him a tune-up for bad behaviour and then tell him about past history involving his grandfather. I'm therefore putting all my weight that this was the queen mother. Verse 12, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, the queen or the queen mother says, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. I have emphasized it's Belteshazzar to make sure that we're not getting Daniel, Belteshazzar, mixed up with King Belshazzar. Well, who suggested to the king that he call in Daniel? In Daniel 5, 10 to 12, the answer is the queen, and I'm suggesting it's the queen mother. Now, I want to ask you, who was this queen? Who was this queen? Let's get a little bit of an insight into this. By the way, I've just forgotten to read the note. For some reason, the queen was not in the room when the writing appeared. She was apparently related to Nebuchadnezzar and probably was acquainted with the true God. Perhaps she was a converted person, which would explain the reason why she was not present for the scenes of debauchery in the king's palace that night. But as soon as she heard of the terror in the ballroom, she immediately made her presence known and suggested to Belshazzar that he call in Daniel, whom she knew would be able to interpret the writing. So I'm going to go a little bit deeper. Historically, who was this queen? Let's go through some of the options. Number one, scholars say she was not Belshazzar's queen. The king's wife, uh, main wife, rarely attended such drunken, debaucherous feasts. That would be like uh, you taking your bride-to-be out on a stag party. Even in ancient times, these things didn't happen. 
The scholars say that it probably was Nabonidus's queen. They suggest the queen mother, and she probably would not have been around. She would have been out of town back in Tima with her husband, Nabonidus, who was Belshazzar's father. Who was the queen? They said not Nabonidus's mother. Her name was Adad Gapi. Adad Gapi. She had died back in 547 BC and was royally mourned. Some said it might be Nebuchadnezzar's wife, a queen named Natokras, by the Greek historian Herodotus. But the problem is Natokras was anti-Median. She didn't like the Medes, and history says that Nebuchadnezzar married a Median wife. Another possibility was this the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. That makes her very young. Would she have been able to recount all that history to King Belshazzar? Possibly not. The answer is we don't know, and the Bible does not say. But I am leaning tonight, if I have to lean one way or the other, to option number two, that this was Nabonidus' queen, the queen mother. And yes, she could have been out of town, but why wouldn't she have been in town? Why could she not have been visiting her grandchildren? And of course, many mums like to hang out with their sons. So who was the queen? I believe she was Belshazzar's mother. Why? Who else could march in there? to the banquet uninvited and unannounced and not receive a death sentence. We're at the top or halfway down page uh, four and question six. We're looking at Daniel interpreting the writing. What position did Belshazzar offer to Daniel if he read and interpreted the writing? We're in Daniel 5, 13 to 16. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas, meaning mysteries. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall become the third ruler in the kingdom. What position did Belshazzar offer Daniel if he read and interpreted the writing? The answer is that he should be made the third ruler in the kingdom. The note says there were already two rulers in Babylon, Nabonidus and Belshazzar. That is why Daniel would be the third ruler. Friends, I'd like you to pause there. I'd like to give you some extra material. I'd like to draw on this amazing book, Daniel, Hostage in Babylon, written by Kendall K. Down. I'm going to read to you from page 34 and halfway down the page. Let me give you some extra information. Why a third ruler? Historical records indicate that Nabonidus married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters by an Egyptian princess. By her, he had a son who he named Belshazzar, which you can see on the screen there, or Belshazzar, as he is called in the Bible. Belshazzar was thus the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar on his mother's side. Now, Nabonidus became king in 556 BC and immediately offended the priests of Marduk in Babylon. He showed a marked preference for Nin, the goddess of Haran, that's in Syria, rather than risk assassination amid the intrigues of his home court in Babylon. Nabonidus spent much of his reign outside Babylon, displaying a particular fondness for Haran. In the year 553, Nebuchadnezzar was campaigning in Palestine when he fell seriously ill. He was taken to the cool Lebanon mountains, and while there, he was taken there to prevent any conflict arising over his succession. So at this point, he makes Belshazzar, his son, the king. Contrary to all expectations, Nebuchadnezzar then recovers. Rather than dethrone his son, Nabonidus was content to leave him as king of the city and the province of Babylon. He himself led his army south to the oasis of Tima in northern Arabia, conquered it and remained there for 11 years. 
Possibly this was an attempt to find new resources for the Babylonian economy or even open up new trade routes. So friends, I want to just remind you now in Babylon from 605 to 539 BC, how many kings were there? There were six kings of Babylon. Let me share these with you briefly. I want to share with you the dates of the reigns of the Babylonian kings. Firstly, there's Nebuchadnezzar II. That's the King Nebuchadnezzar we've been talking about. From 605 to 562, he reigned. He had a son, Evil Merodach. He's mentioned in 2 Kings uh, 25 and verse 27 and Jeremiah 52 verse 31. He reigned 562 to 560, just two years, and he was murdered by his brother-in-law. <clears throat> so Evil Merodach was succeeded by Nergal Shausur. From 560 to 556, he reigned five years. His son, Labashi Marduk, was killed after only two months in 556 BC. Then Nabonidus was, perhaps some suggest, the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar II. He reigned from 556 to 539 BC. And as we've just shared with you, his son, Belshazzar, was a co-ruler or a co-regent from 553 to 539 BC. Evil Merodach, as you can see on the screen, was also known as Amul Marduk, and Nergal Shausa was also known as Neraglissa, and sometimes these words are used in the Bible and in other dated records. Let's go to question number seven, halfway down page four. Before interpreting the writing, Daniel fearlessly reminds Belshazzar of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity because he failed to recognize and honor the God of heaven. Did Belshazzar already know this? This is a really important question. We've got five verses to look at, 17 to 22. Then Daniel answered. Now I'm gonna remind you here, Daniel is getting on to be an older man. He's 85 to 87 years old. And Daniel answers and says before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Friends, Daniel in his old age is not going to get a le lesson from this young whippersnapper, King Belshazzar, who's a lightweight. And he's saying, I'm going to interpret it, but I don't want your gifts. You can keep them because Daniel knows what the message means. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, which means your grandfather, a kingdom, and majesty, glory, and honor. Notice who's getting the glory here, not the gods of Babylon, but the God of Israel, the King of heaven. 19, and because of the majesty that God gave him, that's Nebuchadnezzar, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Remember Daniel chapter two and the wise men? Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. Remember, he threw the three Hebrew worthies into the fiery furnace. Verse 20 of Daniel 5. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. Friends, Daniel is really enjoying this. He's reminding the young King Belshazzar that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar was actually out the back chomping grass and acting like an ass with the wild donkeys. Daniel continues, they fed him with the grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till he, King Nebuchadnezzar knew that the most high God rules in the kingdoms of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. 22. But you, his son, meaning grandson, meaning relative, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you what? Although you knew all this. Did Belshazzar already know this? Of course he did. He knew all this, but he chose not to know it. The note says, Daniel makes it very clear that Belshazzar already knew the reason for Nebuchadnezzar's insanity and evidently was well acquainted with the true God. But in spite of all this, he had failed to humble himself and follow in the footsteps of Nebuchadnezzar, his esteemed grandfather, who did follow the God of heaven and was converted at the very end, just before he died in 562. 
Number eight, what did Belshazzar done that he'd invoked the wrath of God? We're going to Daniel 5.23. And you, King Belshazzar, have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see nor hear nor know, and the God who holds his, your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. What had Belshazzar done that he'd invoked the wrath of God? He'd lifted himself up in pride against the Lord of heaven. He had brought the vessels of his house and drunk wine from them. Friends, we visited this theme a number of times. I'm going to say it again. In ancient times, they didn't have footy teams beating each other. What they had was that our gods are more powerful than your gods because we went to your nation, we went to your country, we went to your city and destroyed you and took the implements and your gods and put them in our temple and therefore our gods are more powerful than your gods. Therefore, this act of drinking from the temple vessel shows Babylon exalting her power over the God of heaven and the God of heaven says, enough. Daniel makes it very clear that Belshazzar already knew the reason for Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. And evidently, yes, I've already read that. So our answer, we are at the top of page five. Sorry, pardon me. At the top of page five, the note, it is in this defiling act of taking the vessels that were consecrated to the worship of the true God and mixing them with pagan worship that brought the wrath of God upon Belshazzar. All right, I've got a lot of scholars here tonight. I want to actually ask you all a question. Here's the question. How many vessels were taken from the temple in Jerusalem? Or maybe I need to ask you how many vessels were actually given back. I'd like you to write this into your lesson guides at the top of page five there by the note. I'd like you to write in there Ezra 1, 7 to 11. If you want to uh, grab your Bibles, it's page 443, but I've got the scripture on the screen. Ezra 1, verses 7 to 11. This is well after Cyrus has taken over the kingdom and Belshazzar has been killed and defeated. Ezra 1 verse 7. King Cyrus also brought out the articles, the King James calls them vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Verse 9, Ezra 1. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles or vessels. Verse 11, how much is all this? All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. 5, how many? 5,400 sacred vessels. Ladies, aren't you glad you didn't have to wash all those? All these Shesbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. So 5,400 sacred vessels made their way back to Judah and the kingdom of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Question nine, give the meaning of the words written on, on the wall in Daniel 5, 25 to 28. And this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upasen. 26 of Daniel 5. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, Mene. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Mene means to number. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and are found wanting. Tekel is weighed. Peres. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The meaning of the words written on the wall, Mene, God's numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you've been found weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perish, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. God was announcing the fall of Babylon that very night, October 12, 539 BC, Babylon fell. Friends, I'd like you to now just have a rest. 
I'm going to give you some extra information. I'd like to share with you Jacques Dukan's book, Secrets of Daniel, which is Wisdom and Dreams of a Jewish Prince in Exile. I'm picking up the story in page 82, page 82. The writing on the wall now terrifies Belshazzar. He knows it's a message from the creator, the divine judge. Somehow he must find a way to find its meaning, but that is not an easy task. The first difficulty resides in the fact that the Aramaic text uses no vowels, as is the case with many ancient inscriptions. So if my name had been written in the ancient times, it would be DVD, which doesn't mean digital video disc, but David is D and the A and the I, the vowels would be missing. So I'd be known as DVD and you'd know me as David because you would know what the vowels were. To read such a text without vowels, one must be already familiar with its meaning. Daniel 5.7 said, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means. Friends, the fact that there may have also been no separation between the words makes deciphering the words all the more difficult. To give you an idea of what the astrologers were up against here, on the screen is the English equivalent of the text with no vowels and no separation between the words. There it is. Can you say that word? Hmm, bit of a problem. We can understand the Chaldeans failure, can't we? Only a revelation from its author would make it possible to read it, let alone to understand it. In any case, even with the vowels, the words make no sense. Now, please have a look on the screen. This is some extra material. Is Hebrew read from left to right or right to left? Yes, you are right. It's read from right to left. So in translating it, it would be mene, and I've had to drop one mene out of there for space reasons. Mene, mene, tekel, or parson. And then, friends, writing it the right way from left to right in English, mene, mene, tekel, or parson. And then in Hebrew, it would read like this, mene, mene, tekel, T-K-L, C-Q-L, and then Paris, P-R-S, that's uh, at the very end there. So friends, Paris means to be divided. Mene, mene, tekel, or parson. Jacques Dukan writes in his book, while we're having a rest from the lesson, on a first level of interpretation, we're dealing with measures of weight. Mene is the mina. It's a 600 grand weight. Tekel is the shekel. That's kind of rhymes, doesn't it? Tekel is the shekel and that is 10 grands. Well, parson is a half minor or 300 grams. It was a message any street vendor in the marketplace could have shouted to inform his clientele of the different weight values of his merchandise. Belshazzar gets the hint, it's a liquidation of stock sale and therefore the end of his business. Belshazzar was quite familiar with such commercial jargon. History tells us Neo-Babylonian kings, in addition to their administrative functions, made commercial transactions. In Babylon, buying and selling were the national pastime. Not only was Belshazzar king of Babylon, he was also a reputed wool merchant. With his commercial background, the writing on the wall should have been clear to him. Daniel will be even more explicit going back to the etymology of each word according to the biblical method of interpretation. Mene derives from a root, a meaning to count or to assign or to determine. Its root also appears in chapter one of Daniel in reference to the daily amount of food the king assigned in verse five of Daniel one. This word occurs in the Bible only in relation to the creator who controls and determines the flow of history. The root of the word mene also designates the Babylonian god of destiny, mene. And that's recorded in Isaiah 65, 11 and 12. Arabic understands the derivative manye in the sense of fatality or destiny. The divine message compares Belshazzar to merchandise that is determined, that is, he is to be liquidated. The king's fate awaits him. Then there's tekel. It comes from a root meaning to weigh, another image pertaining to the commercial world. Belshazzar is here weighed on the scales, verse 27, and like a common piece of merchandise, his weight has been found wanting. The NIV Bible has a literal translation of hasir, in other words, 
He's a fraud. He's a lightweight character. We are in a juridical context as the weighing and the scales infer. For the Bible and ancient Middle Eastern culture as a whole, it is also the language of God's judgment. Have a look on the screen for two texts to back this up. 1 Samuel 2.3, for the Lord is the God of knowledge and by His by him our actions are what? Our actions are weighed. God judges us. Another text, Job 31.6, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. I'm reading through the book of Job right now. I think I'm up to chapter 5. Friends, Job goes through a lot of suffering and he wanted to be right with God. He says, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. Friends, Belshazzar is well aware, Jacques Dukan writes on page 84, of the connotation of judgment and condemnation implied by the words of the message. Finally, or parson derives from a root meaning to break up, to shatter. The word occurs often in the Bible in a context of violence. Micah 3.3, 3, they break. Perez, their bones in pieces. In Hebrew, the white-tailed eagle, a bird of prey, is Perez, P-E-R-E-S, Deuteronomy 14.12. Because it tears everything apart, Perez, to tear, to break, to smash, to divide. The divine message compares Belshazzar to merchandise that falls prey to foreigners and gets torn to pieces. It's something already hinted at in the plural form of the word or parson, or parson is the plural, the only plural of the inscription implying simultaneously a plurality of predators, the Medes and the Persians. Already the sound of the word peres alludes to the Persians. Peres, P-E-R-E-S, Persians, P-E-R-S-I-A-N-S. Belshazzar knows now that his kingdom has come to the end. No wonder I add here Belshazzar got scared and his loins were loosened. Dukan says the idea of termination permeates each word. Mene, numbered, the end of the stock. Tekel, weighed, implies a lack or a degeneration in the stock. And Uparsan or perish, he's divided. The idea of dissolution. But beyond the words themselves in their rhythm, one can hear the four fatal chimes of the end. Daniel, uh, sorry, the inscription consists of four words made possible by the intentional repetition of the word mene. And to each word, Daniel adds a four word explanation in Aramaic. Just stay with me here. The text of the inscription are four words. You can see them from the right to the left. M-N-E, M-N-E, Mene, Mene, T-Q-L in the middle, Tekel, and then Uparsan on the right. The text for the inscriptions of the four words are Mene, four words. Tekel, four words. The explanation of Uparsan or Peres is also four words. What does this mean? The number four plays a prominent role in the book of Daniel. The statue of Nebuchadnezzar consisted of how many medals? I hear you chanting four medals, representing the secession of how many kingdoms? Four kingdoms until the end. Soon, in two weeks time, the same four kingdoms will appear in Daniel 7 in the form of the four beasts and we'll study it soon. Extra biblical literature also observes this cycle of four. The ancient oracles of Persia and Babylon often speak of a cycle of four kingdoms and no more, without necessarily implying the four kingdoms of the book of Daniel. Friends, in this lineup, there's no fifth world kingdom. No fifth, only four. Earthly kingdoms do not exceed four. The number four is the omen of the end. Can I remind you in Exodus 25 and 6 in the commandments, God speaks of a third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And so once again, limited to four generations before extinction. For Belshazzar, the illusion hits home. Four kings succeed Nebuchadnezzar, Amal Marduk, Nereglisa, Labashi Marduk, and finally Nabonidus, with Belshazzar as the co-regent in Babylon the co-ruler. Suddenly it dawns on King Belshazzar 
There will not be any more kings in Babylon. Belshazzar understands right now that he is the last of the Babylonian monarchs. Friends, thank you for staying with me for that. We go back to our lesson in question 10. We're halfway down page five. How soon was the prophecy fulfilled and who became the new ruler of Babylon? We're looking at Daniel 5, 29 to 31. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the what? The third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Friends, see the 62 on the screen? Would you be fascinated to find out if you add up Mene, Mene, Tekel or Parson? that it just happens to come to 62. Isn't God amazing with the codes that he's put into his word? Praise be the name of the Lord is what I say. How soon was the prophecy fulfilled? Well, friends, it was that very night. They were parting with the, with the uh, Persian uh, armies and the Median armies outside the city that very night with Darius the Mede outside. And he became the new ruler. The note says, even while the feast was going on, the fall of Babylon had begun. The Babylonians felt safe in their city. The river Euphrates, which ran through the city, provided a constant source of water. The walls were impregnable. There was plenty of food stored up for a long siege. The Babylonians knew that the army of the Medes and Persians was on the outside, but they felt secure. However, Cyrus, the commander of the Medes and Persians, performed an ingenious engineering feat. He had his soldiers divert the Euphrates River, then he marched his army through the riverbed, underneath the wall of the city and through the inside gates, which had been left open by the drunken Babylonians. Thus mighty Babylon fell. In my reading and studying and preparing for tonight, the ancients said it had been a very dry and hot summer. And that year, the river Euphrates was running very lean and very low, making it even easier to get in. But in the drunken party, the gates over the river of Euphrates were left unlocked, just as God had said back in Isaiah 45 and verse one, all those hundreds of years before. Friends, I want to ask the question here, is the Bible an accurate source? Can we trust the Bible? Have a look here on the screen, have a break for a moment. Of all the non-Babylonian records dealing with the situation at the close of the Neo-Babylonian empire, the fifth chapter of Daniel ranks next to cuneiform literature in accuracy. So far as outstanding events are concerned, the scripture account may be interpreted as excelling because it employs the name Belshazzar, because it attributes royal power to Belshazzar, and because it recognizes that a dual rulership existed in the kingdom. Babylonian cuneiform documents of the 6th century BC furnish clear-cut evidence of the correctness of these three basic historical nuclei contained in the biblical narrative dealing with the fall of Babylon. That's from Raymond Doherty's book, Nabonidus and Belshazzar, page 199 to 200. Friends, let's go and find out if what we've been telling you is true. Here we are in the British Museum, and this is a terracotta foundation cylinder of Nabonidus. This is Belshazzar's father. Nabonidus was a king with a particular interest in ancient traditions. This note says in the British Museum, this document records the pious reconstruction of temples to the moon god at where? I already told you, Haran, and to the sun god and the goddess Anunitum at Sippar. I'm not going to read the rest of it, but I just want you to know that we told you Nabonidus was very into worshipping the gods at Haran and not the Babylonian gods. And this foundation cylinder of Nabonidus from 555 to 540 BC totally backs it up. Friends, do you know what? There was a huge problem with the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel in Daniel chapter five named a king known as Belshazzar that we've discussed tonight that could never be found in the history books, could never be found in the tablets. Nobody knew of it. And so they said that Belshazzar was a fraud, that it was a myth and a legend. So we have to ask the question, what about Belshazzar? Is there any evidence that what we are reading in God's word is true? Have a look at this terracotta cylinder. I've shrunk it down so it, it looks more like a cigar. It's supposed to be wider than that. But I want you to read the note underneath. 
This is from the British Museum. It says a terracotta cylinder describing work on the temple of the moon god Sin. This is uh, equal to Ishtar, the moon goddess, at Ur by a certain king Nabonidus, 555 to 539 BC, and including a prayer for the king himself and his son. Does anyone know the name of Nabonidus' son as spelled out on this cuneiform terracotta cylinder? Would you be surprised to know that we have the record of a king and his son's name was Belshazzar? Friends, how fantastic is that? Would you come with me to question 11? We're at the bottom of page five. How does the book of Revelation describe the fall of modern Babylon at the end time? Revelation 16, 12 to 16. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up. So the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Friends, the river Euphrates is dried up. It prepares the way for the kings of the east. I'd love to get into that prophecy, but I can't do that tonight. We'll cover that when we do a whole lesson on Babylon. The same conditions that existed at the fall of ancient Babylon will exist at the end of time. The drying up of the ancient river Euphrates prepared the way for Cyrus and his armies who came from the east. Having conquered Babylon, Cyrus eventually allowed God's people to go back to Palestine from the captivity. Thus he's seen as the deliverer of God's people. Once more, the book of Revelation in the book of Revelation, the river Euphrates is dried up. That which supports spiritual Babylon is dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. That is the mighty deliverer of God's people. This amazing prophecy will be studied more in detail in lesson 25. Question 12. What happens when the kings of the east come to deliver God's people in Revelation 16, 18 and 19? And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, very symbolic, and the cities of the nation fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of Israel. What happens when the kings of the east came to deliver God's people? The scripture said great Babylon was remembered before God. The same events that caused the fall of ancient Babylon will cause the fall of Babylon at the time of the end. So we're now looking at characteristics of modern Babylon. Revelation makes it very clear there'll be another Babylon at the end of time. The Babylon spoken of in Revelation is not the same as the Babylon of Daniel's day. When Cyrus and Darius conquered Babylon, it became a heap of ruins and has remained so to the present day. The Bible tell, foretells about the rise of another Babylon, which will do the same to God's people as did ancient Babylon. Modern Babylon, according to the book of Revelation, is the great final oppressor of the people of God. So what does the Bible call Babylon in question number 13? Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. What does the Bible call Babylon? It calls it the great harlot that sits on many waters. Friends, it's interesting that the kings had their own harlots. They had their own concubines in ancient times. This is foreshadowing the role of the modern harlot who inhabits modern Babylon. What are the waters that the harlot sits on represent? Revelation 17 verse 15. Then he said to me, John the Revelator writes, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people, multitudes, nations and tongues. What do the waters that the harlot sits on represent? The answer is they are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. What's another name for tongues? Another name for tongues is different language groups. The waters represent all the people over which Babylon is control. Babylon is called a harlot because of her illicit relationships. Question 15 at the bottom of page six, what is the great sin of Babylon? In Revelation 17, 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. What is the great sin of Babylon? She commits fornication with the kings of the earth and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. 
I'd like to explain this, but I'm going to wait for that next lesson on this topic. I'm going to read the note at the bottom of page six. Babylon's great sin is fornication or adultery. You may like to look at the screen. Adultery is an illicit relationship. Obviously, in this case, it's not physical adultery, but spiritual adultery. The next sentence is in the quiz. Listen up. Spiritual adultery is an illicit relationship that combines the worship of God with false worship. That's in the quiz. You might like to underline it. In Daniel 5, we saw that ancient Babylon acted defiantly against God with an illicit relationship, mixing elements of the worship of God with the worship of pagan deities, pagan gods, spiritual Babylon's fornication or adultery. Likewise, it's an illicit relationship that mixes elements of the worship of God with pagan practice. There's nothing that brings down the wrath of God more than an illicit relationship of truth and error. Babylon purports to worship God, but has mixed truth with error. Paganism with Christianity, this can only invite the wrath of God. Friends, you know what God hates? God hates when Babylon mixes together a lot of error with a little bit of truth, and people still buy it as the truth. That makes God so angry because people get deceived. Have you been deceived? Are you deceived right now? then I pray that you'll stay close to God and his word and pray to him every day that you and I will not be deceived as in Matthew 24, 24, that even the very elect might become deceived. Question 16, what does God call this harlot who defies God by mixing paganism with Christianity? In Revelation 17, 5, on her forehead a name was written. What is it? Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Friends, if you've done any study into the mystery religions, you'll know that this title, Mystery Babylon the Great, is very, very significant. I wish I could talk about it tonight. In Revelation, God is warning us against an apostate system of religion that mixes paganism with Christianity and yet claims to worship God. We must be vividly aware that both Daniel and Revelation are warning us against a false religious system in the last days that will attempt to force people to worship God falsely by mixing paganism and Christianity, just as ancient Babylon defied God by mixing elements of the worship of God with the worship of pagan deities. How important it is we be as faithful as Daniel so that we are not corrupted by modern Babylon. 17, what message does God proclaim about modern Babylon? And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Notice Babylon falls how many times? Twice. Babylon the great is fallen. Then she falls again. She is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. has become a dwelling place of demons. The note says, just as ancient Babylon fell when it defied God by mixing the worship of God with paganism, so mighty spiritual Babylon falls whenever it mixes paganism and Christianity. When it has committed this defiling act, mixing paganism and Christianity, the Bible indicates it's become the place where devils dwell. Question 18, how widespread will be the influence of mighty spiritual Babylon in the last days? For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. How many and how widespread is this influence in the last days? For all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Friends, this is absolutely incredible. Babylon the Great is a worldwide spiritual apostasy from truth. Her adultery is worldwide and nearly all people are deceived by her. And I know that is true and I say amen to that. Question 19, as we close, what loving message does God send to his people who are in Babylon? And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, what does God call them? My people, God's people are in Babylon. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. What loving message does God send to his people who are in Babylon? He says, come out of her, and he calls them my people. Interesting. God states that he has people who are still in Babylon. Just as some people are in ancient Babylon who were faithful to God, so today some of God's people are in modern spiritual Babylon. 
but God is calling his people to come out of spiritual Babylon before his final wrath is poured upon her. Spiritual apostasy may be in the very air that we breathe in the last scenes of Earth's history. How important that we remain loyal and true to the scriptures, that our only safety from the snares of the final apostasy, that is our only safety. Daniel 7, or chapter 7 of Daniel, adds significant details as to the identity of this false religious system, which will seek to envelop the whole world in the last days. And we'll share that with you in Lesson 9 in uh, a few weeks' time. God clearly warns us so that we will not be deceived by the apostasy of the end time. In love, God warns those entrapped by modern spiritual Babylon to get out as soon as possible before the final wrath of God is poured out upon Babylon. A final question, if you should ever find yourself ensnared by this Babylonian system that unites paganism with Christianity, will you heed the warning of God's word to come out of Babylon? I've put there, yes, I will, exclamation mark. And friends, some of you need to know there's another place we need to come out of of as well and that is the church of Laodicea. What do we discover in tonight's lesson? Our five theme questions. Why did King Belshazzar even bother using the Jewish vessels? King Belshazzar wanted to humiliate and shame the God of the Jews and show his power in that drunken feast. Question two, what is the meaning of the writing on the wall for us today? God is telling us there's a day of judgment coming for all of us. We're living in it right now. Are you even aware of it? Are you confessing your sins, reading God's word and praying, not out of duty, out of love, because we love God and we want to honour him and we want to represent him right to the world. Amen. Number three, what is God teaching us from the failure of the so-called wise man? God wants us to trust him and his word and not to trust in mankind's wisdom. Why was Daniel promoted to third ruler in the kingdom of Babylon? Belshazzar was co-reigning with Nabonidus, his father. So Daniel had to be the third ruler in the kingdom because Nabonidus was number two. Belshazzar was, sorry, Nabonidus was number one. Belshazzar was number two. Therefore, Daniel had to be number three. Why does God call us out of modern or spiritual Babylon? Why does he call us out? God is warning us to come out so we can avoid its plagues and we can avoid its destruction friends these are six lessons we've learned in the prophecy seminar over the past six weeks tonight our seventh lesson we learned about the handwriting test daniel passed that in flying colors did not need time to go and pray did not need time to have it revealed by god god revealed it to him in an instant but with his wisdom his years of wisdom he he could read aramaic he knew king belshazzar was uh, arrogant he knew he turned his back on the God of heaven. He knew he turned his back on the history of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Medes and Persians were outside the gate. Then I'm not saying it was an easy translation, but Daniel had no respect for this king, and he knew the judgment day had come. Thank you so much to everyone who's doing the quiz tonight. Thanks for putting your name on there. Please put PS07 on there. I look forward to you uh, SMSing those to me tonight or emailing them to me ASAP. There's three response questions in the three boxes on the left. For those of you not doing the quiz, could you answer these in your heart as well? Is it clear to you from tonight's lesson that there's a major spiritual apostasy called Babylon in these last days? If so, could you say yes or put a tick in box one? Number two, is it your desire to follow the Bible only? Instead of the Babylonians, thinking, the Babylonian thinking that mixes together truth and error. If so, can you put a tick in box number two and please say yes if that's your story. Number three, if you should ever find yourself in uh, spiritual Babylon, would you be willing to uh, heed the uh, Bible's warning to come out of her, my people? If so, please tick box number three. All right, let's do our quiz questions. Number one, the act that brought down the wrath of God in Babylon was the use of God's consecrated temple vessels to worship false Babylonian gods. That brought God's wrath down. Is that true or false? I don't think there's any tricks tonight. I think it's pretty straightforward. Just write in there, true or false. Too easy. Number two, when Daniel was called to interpret the writing on the wall, he was unable to interpret it. True or false? He could not decipher the writing. True or false? Number three, the book of Revelation indicates that spiritual Babylon will mix truth and error together and profess to still be Christian. Is that true or false? The book of Revelation indicates spiritual Babylon mixes truth and error together 
and professes still to be Christian, true or false. Number four, God asked his people to reform Babylon, but not to leave Babylon. He asked us to go in and reform Babylon or stay in Babylon and fix it up, but not to leave it, true or false. And number five, spiritual adultery is an illicit relationship that combines true worship of God with false worship. All right, I think our questions are very straightforward tonight. Question number one, the answer is true. Question number two, the answer is false. Question number three, the answer is true. Question number four, the answer is false. And question number five, the answer is true. All right, I think the answers are true, false, true, false, true. Three trues and two falses. Give yourself a score at the top of that. And I look forward to getting your answers tonight or tomorrow. Friends, can I ask you to please prepare Prophecy Seminar Lesson Number 8, The Conflict Over True Worship? We are going to dive into Daniel Chapter 6 next week. I'm asking you this evening, very humbly and very passionately, to read Daniel Chapter 6 through first. You'll get so much more out of it if you read it first before you do the lesson. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have covered a lot of material tonight. We've been able through modern technology to take a trip back to ancient Babylon without leaving our homes. Father, we have got the flavor of Babylon, a mighty city that was very proud and arrogant with proud and arrogant kings who would not bow to the God of heaven. Father, we can all identify with these kings for we have all been willful, disobedient and rebellious. I pray tonight that you'll give us spiritual discernment to realize that these times right now that we're spending 90 minutes studying your word are bringing us closer to you, that you want to make us ready for the kingdom of heaven that is nearly here. Bless everyone who hears these words. Bless them, Father, guide them, lead them, direct them, save them and heal them in my prayers tonight for all who hear this message and I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.